Over the weekend, the Senate approved a $1.9 trillion relief package. The measure now goes back to the House, where it's expected to pass along party lines as soon as tomorrow. The American Rescue Plan, as it's being called, would give some Americans $1,400 stimulus checks, provide a tax credit for families with children, and extend an extra $300 per week of unemployment benefits, among other things. But the bill comes after the country has already spent over $3 trillion on COVID relief in the past year. So at a time when the economy is already improving and vaccination rates are growing, we talked to a top White House economist about the risk that the bill could have unintended consequences. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Monday, March 8th. Coming up on the show, a conversation with an economist from the Biden administration about the $1.9 trillion relief package. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. Washington Wise from Charles Schwab is an original podcast that unpacks the stories making news there. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. This morning, I spoke with Jared Bernstein. He's a member of President Biden's Council of Economic Advisors. And this economic crisis isn't his first rodeo. I wanted to start by going back to 2009 when you were involved with the Obama administration's response to the financial crisis. Were there any lessons from the 2009 stimulus bill in terms of its size or its scope or its ambition? So I was there. And I think the most important lesson is the idea that the risks of doing too little are greater than the risks of doing too much, especially when you consider the extent that COVID-19 shut down the American economy and is still on the land. This crisis is not behind us. The idea of going big, hitting back hard, and finally dealing this virus and this crisis, the knockout blow that it has heretofore eluded, is top of mind of President Biden's motivation here. And if we don't do that, if we fail to act with enough emphasis, strength, alacrity, we won't get to the reliable, robust, racially inclusive recovery that we need to finally hit on the other side of the crisis. We'll continue to go back and forth and wait and see and up and down and a good cycle followed by a bad cycle. That kind of stop and go has been really difficult and painful for many of the American people. And the American Rescue Plan has the strength and the power and the variety of components to get us to that other side of the crisis. So if the lesson from 2009 was that it's better to do too much than too little, it seems like you could argue that the U.S. has already been applying that lesson. We've already spent around $3 trillion on relief packages since the pandemic began. So why do you think we need another $1.9 trillion? In less than two weeks from the moment you and I are speaking, 11 million Americans are going to start losing their unemployment insurance benefits. Right now, there are 9.5 million fewer jobs than there were a year ago. 
This is a larger jobs hole by 800,000 jobs than the depth of the Great Recession. So we're actually in worse shape still than we were there. There are 4 million Americans who've been unemployed for at least six months. The concern there is that if people get stuck in long-term unemployment for too long, what economists call scarring effects ensue, and they can risk being permanently out of the job market, which does long-term damage to both their lives and the macro economy. Last month's pace of job growth came in above expectations. Even at that pace, it would take us more than two years to just get back to pre-pandemic employment levels. And uh, we're looking at unemployment rates for African-Americans as of last month that were just under 10%, 9.9% for Blacks, 8.5% for Hispanics. Those are recessionary unemployment rates. So the urgency of the American Rescue Plan is, in my view, as an economist who's been through these shocks many times in government, just really you know, amplified if you look at the, the real conditions out there. But the economy is starting to improve already. There have been slightly improved jobs numbers recently, and the, the rate at which people are getting vaccinated is increasing. Do you think the economy needs that, that much help at this moment? It's a totally legitimate question, but I think the, the thing that I hear when people say the economy is whose economy are we talking about? We know that this recovery has been K-shaped. There are people, I myself am one of them, who've never missed a paycheck. And that's not to say that the crisis and the pandemic hasn't been a burden for lots of people from all walks of lives. But for those in the bottom half of the income scale, they've experienced the bulk of the job loss, the bulk of the income loss, the bulk of the health crisis, both in terms of health outcomes and in terms of being essential workers, often with very low pay. And many of these folks are still struggling. About 30 million Americans report not having enough food to eat. It is easy to look at GDP or a monthly jobs print or the stock market and conclude we're out of the woods until you go even slightly under the hood. So do you see this as more of a relief bill to plug a gap in the economy until things start to turn around or more as a stimulus bill to try and get the economy moving again? I think of it more in terms of relief and rescue, but I think that sometimes that distinction can be overplayed. There is little question in my mind that if we do relief and rescue with the intention, with the competent governance, with the vision that the Biden administration is bringing to the table, that gets us to a place where we can start thinking more in terms of an economic recovery and less in terms of rescue and relief. If we don't deal with the virus in the ways that we're trying to do in the rescue plan, helping states and localities safely reopening schools, which by the way, that's a good example of what I'm talking about. If you safely reopen the schools, you allow caretakers, or mostly moms, to be able to get back into the labor market if that's what they want to do. So this connection between relief and rescue and stimulus is, uh, I think, a meaningful one. You really don't get to recovery unless you effectively deal with rescue, uh, relief, and virus control. You mentioned that there, the risks of doing too much, as you were saying, were less than the risks of doing too little. But there are still risks when doing too much. 
So I want to talk about some of those possible risks that come with a, a stimulus package this large. First, with the enhanced unemployment benefits, the bill is going to extend enhanced unemployment benefits an extra $300 per week until September. Do Are you concerned at all that this might create a disincentive for people to go back to work as the pandemic does start to recede throughout the year? First of all, on the unemployment insurance point, it's important to recognize that the 300 is a continuation of a policy that's already in place. So whatever incentives are in the system, they're they're not being amped up or amped down. And we've been able to look at whether there's uh, evidence of any employment disincentives playing out, and we haven't seen them. So not a zero risk, something we have to track. But thus far, that's not been problematic. You haven't seen a disincentive for people going back to work? I mean, we've we've talked to business leaders on this show who've said that they hear that when they're trying to get people off the sidelines, who say to them that there's just not enough of an incentive for me to go back to work because... I'm essentially being made whole through the unemployment benefit. I know exactly what you're talking about. And I think you have to distinguish between kind of anecdote and analysis. And I'm not dismissing anecdote. Uh, some people say the plural of, of anecdote is data. And uh, uh, that, that may well be true. Uh, but we haven't seen it in the data. It is very common for employers to say, I can't find the workers I need. (laughs) Sometimes what they're not saying is that the wages I'm willing to offer them. But I know what you're talking about. And there are employers who've been talking about this. But again, it's the way an economist has to look at this is by not so much at the level of anecdote, but by seeing whether the kind of implied negative correlations exist. And thus far, they haven't. Coming up, what adding $1.9 trillion could do to the economy. This episode is brought to you by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI enables rapid access to secure, traceable, hallucination-free insights from enterprise systems, all while using any LLM, helping enterprises turn the invisible into the obvious. Learn more at C3.ai. So in terms of the package's overall size, $1.9 trillion that's being pumped into the economy in various ways. Are you concerned about the risks of inflation, that this could overheat the economy, that as the country does start to open up, as more people get vaccinated, that there's too much money sloshing around in the economy and it leads to harmful inflation? The answer to the question of any White House economist, are you concerned about a risk, is never going to be no. We are always mindful of the non-zero probability of any risk you can imagine. But we've looked at this very carefully, have been tracking, I myself have been tracking the indicators, you know, somewhat obsessively. Here are the reasons why we think overheating risk is considerably smaller than the risk of failing to control the virus, get the vaccine out there and address the huge job gaps you know, 10 million people unemployed, 11 million Americans at risk of losing enhanced benefits in a couple of weeks. First of all, the overheating folks argue that the output gap is smaller than many other economists believe to be the case. And the the output gap essentially just meaning the hole that the economy is in from best case scenario. 
Exactly. The output gap is the difference between where GDP would be at its potential, where the size of the economy would be if it were running on all cylinders and the actual size it is now. And so that's the hole that you have to fill. So the first thing to recognize is nobody knows the size of the output gap, but there's a decent chance it's larger than people think. The second point is that while the checks and the unemployment insurance benefits get out of the door right away, the spend out of the bill is actually slower than some of the overheating folks are recognizing, I think. In other words, Jared is saying that the government won't actually spend all the money at once. Some of the funds will be paid out over the next year or even longer. So the overheating theory is partially based on this idea that $1.9 trillion is going to get immediately plopped into the U.S. economy, and it doesn't work that way. The third point is that some people will save the resources that they get, at least initially, because this is a time when lots of people face lots of uncertainty. For them to have a bit of a savings cushion is really important. Uh, you've got variants out there. You've got lots of uncertainty about the job market. And uh, people need that kind of cushion. Many people are accumulating mortgage and, and rental debt. And so rent relief sometimes is saved and then spent a few months later when it's most needed. That also puts uh, some downward pressure on overheating. The savings rate you, you just mentioned, that is another element here that there are estimates that $1.5 trillion is pent up in savings that people have put away during the pandemic from not doing all the things that they normally do for those, especially who have been able to continue to work. How do you factor that number into this? Yeah, no, it's a fair question. Our view is that we're looking more at a dimmer switch than a light switch, meaning that uh, I don't think that um, on Monday everybody saves everything, and on Tuesday, everybody spends everything. I think this unwinds more gradually. So there's another risk here, which is sort of more of a political one, which is that Joe Biden campaigned on an idea of bringing the country back together in bipartisanship. It was certainly a major feature of his inaugural address. But this is a Democratic bill. This is not a bipartisan bill. Why not try harder to come to a compromise on the stimulus with Republicans? So when people say to me that this is a partisan bill, I have to scratch my head because I understand what you're talking about, but I consider that to be a very Washington view in the following sense. Well, no, no Republicans voted for it. Yeah. So I understand what you're saying, but here's the point. If you look at polling data, this bill is extremely popular and not just with Democrats. And that makes perfect sense to me because... I don't care if you have a D or an R after your name. You want schools to reopen. You want the virus to be controlled. You want people to get vaccinated. You want small businesses to get support. You'd like to see child poverty be significantly cut. By the way, that's, again, a that is a bipartisan issue. And if you look at Republican governors and Republican mayors and lots of Republican economists, they are saying that this is an extremely important measure to get out there. And people, regardless of their political affiliation, recognize that getting to the other side of this crisis is essential if we're going to finally launch a reliable and robust recovery. Is there a data point that you'll be tracking or looking for to know whether in six months or a year, whether this bill has worked? 
there's not one data point, there's tons of data points on both sides of the issue. Obviously, we're going to be looking at the economy and the job market in particular. We're going to be looking at the unemployment rates and we're going to be looking at the uh, labor market outcomes, uh, especially for persons and communities of color. We're going to be looking at small businesses. We're definitely going to be looking at the extent to which the vaccine is getting into the population. And of course, we're going to be carefully gauging inflationary risks along the way by looking at the kinds of gauges I talked about with an emphasis on expectations, I would say. Great. Well, Jared, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. That's all for today, Monday, March 8th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and the Wall Street Journal. If you like the show, follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We're out every weekday afternoon. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.